Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Listener JM recommends SPQR by Mary Beard. Listen to it for free at audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 118, Revival. Today, we finally arrive back in Byzantium, having toured our neighbouring states, and over the next few shows, we need to investigate what has changed within the Roman Empire across the 9th century. You already know the headlines, and most of it is good. The plague has finally dissipated. By the 770s, it would never again trouble major urban centres in the dramatic way it once had. This was one of the factors which allowed the population to begin growing steadily again. An expanding population means unused land can be brought under cultivation, which means more produce, more trade, more tax revenue. By the beginning of the 9th century, this growth had been noticed. Irene's general logothete Nicephorus began to explore the ways in which this new crop might be harvested. Plans he was able to put into practice when he overthrew her and became emperor. Though his tax reforms were unpopular, they brought an influx of new revenue into the treasury. The man who would display this wealth to the world was Theophilus. He upgraded the palace installed golden animals in the throne room, and built beacons across Anatolia. He also oversaw the last major military defeat when, stop me if you've heard this one, the Arabs sacked Amorium in 838. The decline of the caliphate meant that raids from Tarsus and Melitene rarely threatened western Anatolia. And as you may remember, That's the rich part, the fertile part, the part where Mediterranean agriculture blooms. More people lived, more people worked. Pasture land, forest, and other waste ground were cleared and turned into productive farms. Even up on the plateau, the Romans began to adapt to the smaller raids which arrived each summer. The army began to develop effective countermeasures and then went on the offensive. 
By the end of the century, the eastern elites had begun to eye areas for expansion. Land that had been far too vulnerable to occupy was now a potential source of income. Not to mention the territory which might be captured from the Armenians and Arabs across the border. Listener ZB asks, what were the most important things which led to this revival? How much credit should the government receive for its policies? And which factor was the most critical? Hopefully you all know by now that the most critical was the decline of the caliphate, and the Byzantines had very little to do with that. In fact, as we saw when discussing relations between the two, the Romans had begun to accept their neighbours as a permanent fixture. The caliphate had enfeebled the Roman Empire, and it was their decline which reversed the situation. The only way the Byzantines could have grown while the caliphate was still raiding would have been to recolonize the Balkans. And as we've recently discussed, the Emperor Nicephorus blew that opportunity and the Bulgars made sure that it would never happen not in a way which would see patriotic Romans living across the peninsula anyway. Once the population began to grow, and the raids began to ease, then the policies which followed were relatively straightforward. Nicephorus was financially smart, and his reforms were helpful to the state. Theophilus raised the pay of the troops, meaning no more rebellions and civil wars, Theodora ended iconoclasm, which brought a unity of ideology. Basil assaulted the Paulicians, which pushed Roman troops into the mountains. I'd say that none of these policies deserve special credit. I think they're all steps on the road to recovery, but they could each have happened at different times, enacted by different emperors, and the revival would have happened anyway. The growth of the population and the decline of the caliphate were the two most important developments, neither of which had much to do with state policy. I think the government could have ruined it, but fortunately they didn't. Remember that old line about history being 90% geography and 10% common sense? In this case, I think it applies. There were far more Romans than there were Bulgars or Armenians, or Arabs at least, up in the mountains. Given the room to breathe, the Byzantines were always likely to reassert themselves. To give the government its due, though, the most vital decisions which led to this recovery were the ones taken a long time ago, the ones which kept the state together in the face of the initial onslaught by the Persians and then the Arabs the location of Constantinople and the construction of the walls, Heraclius withdrawing his armies behind the Taurus Mountains, the development of the themes, Leo III being welcomed as emperor, the deployment of Greek fire. It was these policies which had kept the capital city secure. And inside, a government had been maintained, a bureaucracy had been able to keep collecting tax, that money had funded an army to protect the land and a priesthood, to protect souls, all legitimized by a political system established by centuries of tradition. The survival of that civilization across the last 300 
tumultuous years is the real answer to the question. Now that might sound grandiose, an ode to the greatness of Rome. I don't mean it to be. The Romans were extremely fortunate that Constantine decided to build a new capital. If he'd stuck with Nicomedia, I think the empire would have ended long ago. But he didn't, and the fortress he established maintained a center which the Roman people could cling to. Think about it. Since the time of Julius Caesar, we've seen many states rise and fall. In the case of Iraq, for example, we've had the Seleucids, then the Parthians, the Sassanids, the Caliphate, and now the Safarid dynasty. Over in the Balkans, we've seen invasions by the Visigoths, the Huns, the Ostrogoths, the Avars, the Slavs, the Bulgars, and yet through this whole time in between the two, there's been Rome. Yes, of course, the empire has been through some major changes, but the continuities are impressive, and they protected a way of life which survived those dramatic assaults. Systems had been put in place to keep the state together, and they worked. They worked well enough that when the time came that the caliphate faltered, the Romans had what they needed to fuel a revival. We've talked before about the city, the walls, the army, the tax system. Back in episode 85, I also briefly discussed how the Roman government literally paid its elites to not abandon it. Yes, a chunk of the money gathered in tax was paid out to the great and the good in return for their loyalty to the imperial court. Despite the shameless promotion of aristocracy which this policy represented, it was a big part of the survival, and now revival, of the Roman state. So I think it deserves our attention. Plus, we need to understand how this system operated to fully comprehend the ways in which the revival was changing Byzantium. These changes will lead directly to both the wild success of the next 200 years as well as the collapse beyond it. Stay tuned. As I say, payments to the elite are not a new thing. I've mentioned it every century, whenever listeners have asked, what happened to the Senate? When the eastern provinces and Balkans were lost in the 7th century, the old senatorial distinction disappeared. It had to, because men who yesterday had been extremely wealthy landowners were today penniless, or at least drastically less well-off. Imagine if you owned huge tracts of land in Syria, and then married someone who had lands in Macedonia. Together, you live in Constantinople in a mansion, and you own a summer house on the Bosphorus. If the two of you lived between, say, 630 and 650, you would have witnessed your entire world shrink to the walls around you. You can no longer safely travel to Macedonia. The Arabs have taken Syria, and then the Avars sack your summer home during the siege. All you have left is your house in the capital, a city which has shrunk in size, no longer has a functioning aqueduct, and which is periodically hit by bubonic plague. Needless to say, you could no longer define the Senate based on a gathering of the mega-wealthy. 
new distinctions had to be imagined to encourage the elites to still come to Constantinople to compete with one another for status and, by extension, kowtow to the emperor. The system which developed seems to have evolved from administration to administration. We can't credit any one person. But the emperors quickly came to realize that this new aristocracy of service was an effective way of keeping the elites under their control. So, what exactly are we talking about? Obviously, at the top, you have the emperor, and he or she has the power to appoint everyone. And obviously, he would start with the top jobs, patriarch, city prefect, senior generals, etc. They would all be paid big salaries, but they needed them. In particular, the generals would need to fund a whole retinue with bodyguards and household staff out of their pay. Next, the Vasilevs would fill out the rest of the bureaucracy and his household staff, all of whom received salaries in exchange for doing their jobs. This includes provincial officials and bishops and other clergy. But beyond them, the emperor would also offer many other titles to the elite which came with salaries or stipends or other perks. The highest court title was, of course, Vasilevs. Second highest was Caesar. And then when you go down the list, you have titles like Curopalates, Magistros, Antipatos, Patricios, Hypatos, Protos Patarios, and so on. Now, these titles were generally just honorary. You didn't have to do any work once you had them, other than turning up to processions and imperial events, and obviously don't do anything to have it taken away, like heresy or treason or whatever. These titles had usually grown out of old roles within the palace, so Curo Pilates was the caretaker or manager of the palace. Patricios came from the old title of patrician. Spatharios meant sword-bearer. It came from a now-defunct unit of bodyguards. These honorary titles will be familiar to those of you who know uh, a bit about English royal history, with gentlemen of the king's bedchamber and things like that. These honours gave the receiver status, cash, and prizes. The prizes were silk garments or gold ornaments. The status was literally your ranking within the hierarchy of the court. Take the Curopilates. The holders of this office could expect to stand almost at the head of the line during processions and in church. They would be invited to dine with the emperor on various occasions and generally be a source of envy to all their peers. But here's the kicker. They would also receive an annual salary of 32 pounds of gold. Yes, every year, the holders of this title would be paid by the state to the tune of 2,304 gold coins. Now, if you were such a high-ranking figure then you could be called upon to do work for the empire. It was senior men like this who were often sent on embassies to foreign powers, uh, which could be dangerous. You might be asked for other contributions, too. But then again, you might not be. You might just be able to live in the capital, a life of leisure, punctuated by occasional trips to the palace. 
Once you had a title, it was yours for life, unless you did something foolish. Life expectancy being what it was, presumably the state was never worried about octogenarians cashing in year after year. From the point of view of the state, then, why pay these people if they aren't going to contribute anything? On a basic level, these payments made the elites the clients of the government. The emperor became the ultimate patron, who everyone came to see in exchange for a salary. It's not difficult to see the necessity of this development in the wake of the collapse of Roman power in the 7th century. With the emperors so evidently having lost God's favor, making the elites dependent on him for both their status and their livelihood was a neat way to buttress his tenuous authority. As we saw during various military rebellions and the iconoclastic struggle, the government was at times desperate just to keep the empire together. Think about a town out in Anatolia that was sacked by the Persians. Heraclius comes by, rounds up the few young men who survived, and leads them off to war. The boys never come home, but the emperor is victorious, so maybe everything will be okay. We've suffered tragedy, but now things will get better. But they don't. Soon Heraclius is riding past again, heading home in defeat. The Arabs now raid and sack your town again. For communities who suffered this kind of treatment, it would have been perfectly reasonable to abandon the Roman state. To hell with them, they take my money and offer no protection in return. The reason that no communities did probably has less to do with Roman patriotism and more to do with a lack of alternatives. No Anatolian warlord emerged to challenge Constantinople. The elites kept looking to the Bosphorus for all their needs. And one of the major reasons why was that the state kept offering them salaries in gold coin. With no alternative source of wealth in war-ravaged Anatolia, a government salary was insurance against further loss. I should stress, too, that although the government might seem a bit pathetic, paying powerful men to come and play with them, that's not how the elites felt about it. By buying into the system, the elites naturally created competition for the highest offices and titles. This increased the prestige of those honours, and led to the next natural step, paying the government in exchange for a title. Yes, both honours and careers in the bureaucracy were up for sale. The emperor would obviously hand out some honours to family members, those who'd been loyal, or those he wanted to court. But once these had been assigned, men would pay for the right to be a curopalates or a spatharios. Positions would often sell for huge amounts more than they paid out. So an asecretus, an imperial secretary who might write laws, would receive an annual salary of 30 gold coins. But pay, say, 850 coins just to get the job. An imperial chamberlain might have to save up 500 coins 
to grab a role which paid only 20 per annum. In theory, this was good business for the government. They could make a net profit if the holder of office retired, died or was disgraced before they recouped their initial investment. Why would people pay so much in that case? The financial considerations were actually pretty simple. The Byzantines lived in an insecure world. A bad harvest or an Arab raid might destroy a year's work on an estate. Even for a rich man, this could be disastrous. But the state drew money from across the empire. The salary you'd purchased was guaranteed. The gold coins you received could pay for the food and supplies that your farms had failed to produce. A court title was therefore both an insurance policy and a state pension. For those who purchased a job of some kind, there was also the possibility of enriching yourself through extracurricular payments, a practice which no one really saw as corrupt. It was understood in Constantinople that if you needed a permit or a receipt or some other official document, you had to pay for it. The government official was there to be paid for his services, even though he was also being paid by the state to do his job. In addition to these economic benefits, I don't think we should underestimate the power of peer pressure. How many of our decisions are based on how our friends will react? What will they think of that decision? Of the job I have? The clothes I wear? The way I behave? Are you jealous of peers who seem to have a better lifestyle than you? Or what about celebrities? Do they influence your behavior or act as a point of comparison in some way? For the Byzantines, the whole game of keeping up with the Joneses was encapsulated in the court system. Your worth could be directly seen by all your contemporaries when you lined up in ranks to await the arrival of the emperor. Every year during the week before Easter, the elites would come to the palace to collect their pay. They lined up in their finest clothes to show obedience, and in exchange for their loyalty, the emperor handed over bags of cash. Literally, sacks of it in some cases. Eyewitnesses report that servants had to come help the curo palates and similar ranks drag the sacks off the palace floor. To have that whole facet of your social world localized in one time and place each year must have driven families on towards purchasing higher honors and offices. For the emperors, it was equally valuable. It reinforced the subservience of the elites to your rule, a system which some have suggested was necessary given the insecurity of the imperial position. The Vasilefs was no king. His family did not have a divine right to rule, as the brutal murders of Leo V and Michael III demonstrate. For someone like Basil, who had once helped rich men onto their horses, the need for a system like this was obvious. He required the elites to come and bow before him. He needed their dependence. If he couldn't gather them in one place to keep an eye on them, then who knows what plots they'd be hatching back on their estates. 
to return to listener ZB's question then, this is certainly one deliberately designed policy which helped lead to a Byzantine revival. Because of the way history is written, and this podcast is narrated, uh, with the emperors always at the centre of the story, it could be easy to just assume that the loyalty of the Roman people was guaranteed. But it really wasn't. The last three centuries have been a constant struggle. The government grew strong to deal with this crisis, developing a system which tied everyone to the court. Now the struggle is largely over. The good times are about to return. Most people will be better off and more secure. The irony is that this revival will see the elites become less dependent on the state, and that in itself is a new challenge for the government to wrestle with, something we'll begin to delve into in two episodes' time. Next time, we need to talk further about money. All this talk of revival prompted several listeners to ask about trade. How much of this upturn in the empire's fortunes were due to the commercial strengths of Constantinople? The answer may surprise you. Before I go, though, I should point you towards hours and hours of high-quality audio about the Roman Empire, available at audible.com. Listener J.M. recommends the book SPQR by British historian Mary Beard. Listener J.M. says it was enlightening and exceeded my expectations. Here's a snippet of the unusual evidence which Mary Beard has studied. Those are putting under the microscope the human excrement found in a cesspit in Herculaneum in southern Italy to itemise the diet of ordinary Romans as it went into and out of their digestive tracts. A lot of eggs and sea urchins are part of the answer. You can listen to that book right now for free at audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic. And I get a little support for the show for sending you there. Win-win. Sign up for a one-month trial of their service anytime and check out the hundreds of thousands of clips and audiobooks that they have to offer. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. WarbyParker.com slash covered. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.